0: So we are looking tonight at the book of Nahum. We're in these books of the Bible that most Christians don't know anything about. Maybe they've read them. If, you did a, if you've ever done a one through the Bible in a year plan, you've read these books. But if somebody pinned you down and said, OK, what's Nahum about? I bet most of you would say, I'm not sure. And, and you know what? Even as a pastor, and even as somebody who's read through the Bible many times, it, it's hard for me. When you get to those minor prophets to say, okay, which one was Nahum and which one was Obadiah and which one, you know, so it's good for us to remember these things, not just for the sake of knowledge, okay? It's not just so you can feel like you're smart, not just so you can win a Bible trivia contest, but every one of these books are in the Bible for a reason. And for us to just focus on the Gospels, as beautiful as they are or just focus on Revelation, or just focus on the Psalms, or just whatever your favorite book of the Bible is, you're missing so much. We're missing so much. Uh, and so it's good for us to refresh our memories or to learn for the first time what these what these almost hidden books are about. And Nahum is especially one of those books that it's important for us to understand why that's in the Bible. Because when you read it, and we're not going to read the whole thing, it's only 47 verses, so we could easily do that, but we're just going to focus on on some of the verses tonight. But when you read it, especially as New Testament believers, you think, okay, why is this in the Bible? I don't, I don't understand. In fact, that kind of seems to go against some of the things I understand about the gospel. And we'll get into that tonight. So who was Nahum? He was a prophet, but we don't know really anything about him other than his name and where he was from. And we don't even know where the city he was from was. No one has, there's been no ruins of Elkosh found. Uh, There are theories about where it might be, but nobody really knows. He's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. The name Nahum means to comfort, which is ironic considering the subject matter of the book is judgment. But then again, it's also appropriate in a sense. And we're going to get into that by the end. You'll see that judgment can be comforting depending on your situation. So what is the book about? It's about the coming destruction of the city of Nineveh. Anybody recognize that name, Nineveh? You should, if you didn't already know. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of Jonah. Jonah lived about a century and change before Nahum. You remember, he wanted to see Nineveh burn. But God gave him the job of going and announcing judgment to them so they could repent. And when they repented, God relented and they were spared. So in essence, Nahum has the job that Jonah wanted, which is to go down there, or not to go down there, but just to announce to Judah, guess what? You're going to watch Nineveh destroyed. That's what Jonah wanted to do, and God didn't let him. Now, Nineveh has that job. So, uh, just for your information, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Most of you know that, but I wanted to make sure you know. Just an interesting thing, an interesting note, it's where Nineveh was is present-day Mosul, Iraq. I've not been there, but they say that if you know if you're in Mosul today, you can go across the the I think it's the Tigris, and you're in the ruins of of uh, of ancient Nineveh. It was a major city in Nahum's day. It was the dominant city of the whole Middle East, um, and was the most powerful empire in that part of the world. Uh, in In the time period we're talking about, it. Uh, The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, Israel, Samaria, carried off the ten tribes, and of course they've been lost to history. We don't know what happened to most of those people. Um, And Judah became sort of a slave state to the Assyrians for many, many years. So we can assume Nahum grew up in a Judah that was not really free. They had to pay annual taxes to the kingdom of Assyria. They had to do everything Assyria said. And hope that Assyria was pleased with them. So uh, the theme of this book is: the Lord reigns and he'll have the final word against evil. So he's the whole purpose of this book is to say to Judah, don't worry, your enemy is going to be destroyed. And it actually happened. It happened in the year 612 BC. Now, the problem for us as Christians is when we read this book, which is just straight judgment, there's no yeah, Unlike all these other prophetic books we've been reading, there's no instruction in it. There's no, hey, Israel, here's what you should do in response. There's none of that. There's no, okay, here's the hope that's coming. No, it's just judgment. So what do we do with that, especially as New Testament believers? And we'll get into that question at the end of our study. So one way for us as contemporary people, for us to kind of put our minds around what's going on in this time is, And I think most of you are old enough, probably all of you are old enough to remember the Cold War, right? Imagine that God put a prophet in a place like the Ukraine or Belarus or any of those old former Soviet republics around 1950 or 1960. And he started going around saying, well, don't you worry because just a little while down the road, the whole Soviet Union is going to collapse. Now, everybody would have thought he was crazy because the Soviet Union back then seemed like it would Go on forever. It was a the biggest threat to world peace and world security that anybody could ever imagine. Dominated all these countries, did all kinds of injustices, and yet you and I both know that in 1989 it all fell apart. Now, this is what's going on here. Nahum is announcing things that are in the future. We don't know exactly when he's saying these, but from context, we can tell it's not next year that this is going to happen. It's somewhere down the road. And so, probably, when people heard Nahum's words, they thought, "Well, that sounds good, brother, but I don't see any signs of it." So, let's pick up with chapter one, verse one. Start at the beginning. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. It is just an interesting note. Out of all the prophets, Nineveh is the only. Or I'm sorry, Nahum is the only one that's described as a book. So I don't know if that means that all the other prophets spoke and someone wrote their words down, whereas Nahum actually sat down with a pen and paper and wrote. But that's that's just an interesting note. The only one that's called a book. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So right off the top, you you get the distinct message that this book is about God. It's not about Israel. It's not about Judah. They're not the heroes. They're not the main characters. It's about him. It's it's God versus Assyria, and we know how that's going to turn out. God is the mighty warrior at the center of the story. Now again, as New Testament believers... You know, we're kind of disturbed when when God is described as jealous and wrathful and avenging. But we'll see as we go on why that is. Verse 2 should sound familiar when it says, I'm sorry, verse 3, when it says, He's slow to anger and great in power, will by no means clear the guilty. That should sound familiar to you if you've been in our church recently because... Uh, when we studied Exodus a couple a couple of months ago, that's what God said his name was in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He passed by Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock and said, I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and holy and slow to anger, but I don't clear the guilty. The guilty have to pay. So that's, that's a message that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, and here's one of those examples. Um, so, Skip over to verse 11 of chapter 1. From you, he's talking about Assyria, came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the king of Assyria. Now, you probably don't care what the king's name was. There were a bunch of Assyrian kings in in biblical times, and and they've got some some really interesting names. My favorite is Tiglath-Pileser III, which sounds like (laughs) Sounds like the, the villain in you know, Lord of the Rings or something, one of those fantasy novels. But uh, scholars, a lot of scholars think he's talking about a guy named Sennacherib. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that name. Sennacherib is the, the main villain, you might say, the main character of a story that's told in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. Same story, told three times. So you know it must be important of how Sennacherib led his army south to the little kingdom of Judah just to conquer this tiny little bunch of people. And along the way, he's destroying Judean towns left and right until he gets to Jerusalem, and he lays siege to the city. Now, in the ancient world, I'm I'm sure today's the same. What could be worse than being locked up in your city knowing that once the food and the water runs out, we're going to starve to death or we're going to... We're going to die of thirst, or they're going to break through and kill us all, but one way or another, we're lost. And that was Jerusalem. But you remember, Isaiah comes to the king, who's Hezekiah at the time, and says, don't you worry, God's got this. God is going to take care of this guy. And Sennacherib, with all his boasting and with all his uh, threats, and saying arrogant things like, well, you know, where are the gods of these other countries I've conquered? wakes up one morning and notices that several tens of thousands of his soldiers died in the middle of the night. The angel of the death has come upon the enemy soldiers and he has to go home in shame. And that's the reason that story is told three different times in the Old Testament is it's God's way of saying, look what I can do when you think the odds are against you, but you're with me. Don't you worry because I've got a plan. So scholars think that's the king that Nahum is talking about here and he says in verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off from you and will burst your bonds apart. Now he switches, you know, there he's talking to his people. Now in verse 14, he switches to talking about the Assyrians or about Sennacherib. He says, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now, it's one thing for someone to insult someone else and say, you're just, you're just a nasty, vile person. But when God says it, it's true, right? This is God's judgment on this king as mighty as he might be. And notice he's talking about the house of your gods and the, the places of your images. The Assyrians, like all other people in the ancient world, had the gods that they believed were their national gods. You know, Israel was the only one arrogant enough to think, you know, our God is one God, and he's the God of the whole world, not just us. But the Assyrians, they had their national gods. The scholars have found at least 17 different Assyrian gods. They worship them in their temples. This is what God's talking about interesting. So here's what it was to live under the authority of a foreign power as as Jews in that time. Uh, not only do you have to pay taxes, not only do you have to follow their laws, they made you worship their gods too. There's the story in, in the book of Second Kings and Isaiah of Ahaz, one of Judah's worst kings. He comes back to, after a visit to Damascus in, in Assyria, uh, he comes back to Jerusalem and says, okay, we need to design a new altar for the temple. And so he designs this new altar that's just like the one they worship up in Assyria. And he clears out all the sacred stuff from the temple of God, the things that God ordained to be there. Okay, get out of there. We got to put this new stuff in here that that, uh, worships these other gods. That's what it's like to be under the, the domination of a foreign power in this time. They make you worship their gods. And that's what happened with Ahaz. Ahaz was too weak to stand up against that, too weak to trust in the Lord. And interesting enough, where did Sennacherib die? He died in his own temple. His, uh, his sons murdered him while he was worshiping his gods. So it's notable that the Lord mentions that in verse 14. So verse 15, this is kind of the key verse of the book and the one you would probably be most familiar with. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So that idea of the beautiful feet. Now, I, I always laugh when I see that. It's mentioned twice in the Bible, that image of beautiful feet. One is here in Nahum. The other one is in Isaiah 52.7. So when I was in seminary, my first job... Before I got a ministry job, I was part of the custodial crew of a big church there in Fort Worth, and uh, it was a big crew, a uh, big church. One of the other guys who worked with me was a fellow seminary student who was quite a bit older than me. He was an old man. He was like 35, um, and he was also named Jeff, but he wasn't married, which, you know, 35, not even married. Goodness gracious. And and so... Uh, one day, we always kind of teased him about that, and one day he came up to us, the rest of us, and he said, hey, um, did you see that beautiful feet lady that was here? And we all looked at him like, Jeff, you got a girlfriend? He said, no, 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 that lady from Beautiful Feet. I didn't know what he was talking about. It turns out there was a ministry up there, like a, like a feeding ministry called Beautiful Feet Ministries, and it comes from this image, Beautiful Feet. What is it talking about? It's picturing a messenger who comes running to Jerusalem. And when he comes through the gates, he says, Listen, everybody, I got news. Assyria has fallen. Nineveh has been destroyed. Our enemies are conquered. And people will look at him and say, Blessed are the feet that carried you here to give us those news. Your feet are beautiful, right? Because they brought you here to give us that good news. Now it says, "Good news." Can anybody tell me the word in good news for uh, the word good news in Greek? Anybody know what that word is? Gospel. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, that's that's how we. Yeah, we call it gospel. It's it sounds different in Greek, but yeah, you're exactly right. So literally, this guy is an evangelist. He is bringing the good news, not the good news that we know about, but the best news those people were going to hear in their lifetimes. And when it says, who publishes peace, that word peace is shalom in Hebrew. Shalom, remember, and I've said this before, you've probably heard this before, shalom doesn't mean peace like you and I think about it. So, you know, when, when a couple in, in Israel is getting married and everybody says, shalom to you, they don't just mean, I hope y'all don't fight. I, mean, I hope you have peace in your. I hope he doesn't snore so you can sleep. No, peace shalom in Hebrew means much more than peace means, which is absence of conflict. Here, peace or shalom in, in Israel means may you have all the blessings. May everything be the way it ought to be. May every may there be justice and peace and righteousness that just fills your house and blessing upon blessing. So he is publishing the the shalom of the city. Suddenly this. City of slaves is going to become a city of free men and women. Uh, So that's chapter 1. Now, we're only going to look at the first two verses of chapter 2. But let's look at those. Chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come against you. Now, here he's talking to Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their their branches. He's he's calling Nineveh to war. He's saying, you better get ready because the battle's about to start. Sharpen your swords, grab your shields. Here comes the army, but it won't do any good for you to get ready because he's going to destroy you. Notice he says, the scatterer has come against you. It's kind of an, an interesting image. Here's a city full of all these you know well-armed men, and they're all going to be scattered to the wind, not one close to the other. Um, and, and what follows in chapter 2, which we won't read, but you can read for yourself, is a very vivid description. Nahum's a good writer. It's a vivid description of what that battle's going to look like. He describes chariots racing through the city and, and swords clashing. He describes uh, these powerful defenses that they were so proud of, just suddenly falling. He, following. he He describes the plunder being gathered by the, the invading armies. And, and he talks about, you know, you used to be a pit of lions and now the lions are are no more. So just understand in all of this, he's speaking in the future. None of this has happened yet. So how does he know? How does he know what's going to happen? Because God's in charge. Now, I've all I I sincerely believe and I try to communicate to y'all, that doesn't mean that everything that happens in the world today is because of the express will of God. Y'all know that, right? We can't, it's not my job, and it's not your job to stand up and say, oh well, you know, those those people in South Louisiana must be really wicked that they're getting all these storms. Uh, Don't you say that. That's not your per that's not on you. And and, as soon as you say that, something's going to hit us. And then we'll have to say, well, I guess we're the wicked ones. Um, But Nahum's different because he's a prophet and God's given him this word. He's saying, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I'm telling you ahead of time, which tells us there are times when God directs the battle, directs the election, directs the storm, directs the whatever, and says, okay, I'm going to use this event in history as an instrument to bring about my will. And this is one of those cases. He can do that anytime he chooses. All right, so chapter three, verses one through three, and this is one of those, um, if this is a TV show, when it comes back from commercial, it says the following program is rated M for uh, some violent content. Uh, So verse one, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, Horsemen charging, flashing sword, and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It's a really gruesome image. And that's for a reason. He's describing it accurately. This is what you have to look forward to, Nineveh. This is what's going to happen in this country, in this city. And it's no exaggeration. I mean, I... At one of the churches I pastored, there was an old man there who had been uh, in the Battle of Okinawa in World War II. And he told me once, he said, I, I, can, I can remember standing and looking as far as the eye could see, and I could have stepped on bodies the whole way. And I just can't even comprehend that. I've never been through anything like that. And most of you, thankfully, haven't either. It's in the Word of God because God wants us to understand the magnitude of the judgment that's about to fall in this city. But it's also a reminder to us, and I know this isn't the message of Nahum, this is my editorializing, but it's good for us as Americans, it's good for us as Christians to love our country, to be patriotic. It's good for us to support the troops that protect us so valiantly. It's good for us to honor people who've sacrificed for our country, but it's not good for us to love war. We need to understand that. Don't take it casually. Uh, when, when wars break out, don't rejoice. This is not, you know, this is the, the exception because this is obviously of God. But, you know, when you hear something on the news that nations are going to war or when our nation is sent into war, that's not a cause for rejoicing. That's a cause for soberness and prayer and, and praying that it ends as quickly as possible because inevitably way more people are going to die than you think God. Not just ours, but theirs and, and people caught in the middle. So war is a terrible thing. All right, chapter 3, verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and her water a wall? So let me explain what he's talking about here. Thebes was a city in Egypt. It was the city of Egypt, one of the great cities of the ancient world. And Egypt, of course, was a very powerful country. And Thebes was considered impregnable. Because it was surrounded by the Nile, you know the Nile River. I've never been there, but it's a huge body of water. The Egyptians call it; they don't call it a river. They call it a sea. And so you picture this massive body of water that sort of encircles this mighty city, and you think, well, nobody can ever invade that. They'd have to cross that river, and then they'd have to get through the walls, and they'd have to fight all the soldiers. And, and you know, obviously, this is a city full of wealth and beauty, and, and yeah, they're not going to give up. But the Assyrians did it. The Assyrians conquered Thebes and just tore it to the ground. There's no Thebes left. I mean, you, you go to Egypt today, you can see the ruins, but there's no, there's no city there anymore and hasn't been for thousands of years. He says, are you any better than they are? His point is, okay, you Assyrians, decades ago, you conquered Thebes and you raised it to the ground, but now somebody else is going to do the same to you. And it's a reminder Nations are no different than people in this regard. We always think, well, I'm better than that guy I just beat. I, you know, I, I learned from his mistakes. I conquered him. I, I put him in the ground. I, I did better than him. Well, nobody can touch me. Well, there's always a bigger dog out there. And every bully eventually meets his match. And this is what's going to happen there. Are you any better than thieves? Verse 9 says, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. So he's describing all the countries that were allied with Egypt back then. So Cush is ancient Ethiopia, you know, Put and Libya. We know those are all northern African countries. Verse 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Again, really disturbing detail, but the Bible doesn't hold back. It wants us to understand. "'For her honored men lots were cast, "'and all her great men were bound in chains. "'You also will be drunken. "'You will go into hiding. "'You will seek a refuge from the enemy. "'All your fortresses are like fig trees "'with first ripe, first ripe figs. "'If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. "'Behold, your troops are women in your midst. "'The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. "'Fire has devoured your bars.'" So he's saying you think you're so strong. You point to all these victories you've won in the past. And you're going to you're going to be amazed at how quickly and easily you will fall. I love that image of first ripe figs. I mean, I, I, how many of you've ever had a fig, right? Most of you. I, think about how tender a ripe fig is. You can squish it between your fingers. And he's describing their city. You think you're so strong? You're just going to shake you, and the figs are just going to fall, and you're going to be you're going to be done for. He's he's telling them this city is going to fall, and nothing can stop it. The city that thinks it's so strong is going to be destroyed. What makes you think you'll be any different? He's telling them. There's a there's a psalm. There's a verse from the Psalms that I like. It's Psalm 33:17 that says, "A horse is a vain hope for deliverance." This is nothing anti-horse, but it's just talking about in the ancient world, if, you, if your army had horses, you were better off than an army that was just men on foot. And so kings who had a mighty cavalry would say, well, nobody can beat us. And so the, Psalm is, the psalmist is saying, you put your hope in that, well, then somebody else is going to come and they've got iron chariots and they can destroy your horses. The point is not just about military matters. The point is, if you have your hope in something else, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your your career or your social status, maybe it's your, your youth and vigor, maybe it's whatever. Whatever your hope is in, it's a vain hope for deliverance. It can't save you unless it's the Lord. So let's finish up the last five verses, starting with verse 14. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Uh, see, so he's challenging them. Yeah, bring in all your soldiers. You don't just tra- count on the, the troops of Nineveh to, to protect you. Bring in the whole Assyrian army and pack them in, and they're all going to fly away like locusts. Yeah, locust horde looks really impressive, but when it's scattered, what is it? It's just a bunch of individual bugs, and that's going to be the Assyrian army. Verse eighteen: Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains, with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Now, this is how the book ends, right here. You think about if you've been with us the past several weeks. All these books that we read, several of them have some disturbing imagery and some harsh words, but they usually end with a vision of the people of God in the throne room of of the king and the the future uh, wonders. Let's look how this book ends. It says, all who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And that's it. The end of the book is we're going to throw a big party because you just died. Now that's disturbing because we as New Testament believers, we read that and we think, well, what about, what about love your enemies? You know, Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who hate, you. do good to those who persecute. What about 2 Peter 3 9? It says God does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. What do we do with that? How do we, how do we reconcile those two seemingly contradictory parts of the Bible? First of all, understand, there he's describing the response of the people, not the response of God. Based on what we know of God through the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, we know that his destruction of Nineveh did not bring him pleasure, but sorrow. This was something he had to do, not something he wanted to do. But it's describing the reaction of the people. See, there is... There is a basic human need to see justice done, and, and we know that. When we hear about a, a terrible crime, we want to see the one who perpetrated it brought to justice. There's a, there's a yearning for that in our hearts. Think about, historically, think about uh, in, in 1946 when the Nuremberg trials were held and, and the, all the Nazi leaders were brought before that court. And the, the attention of the world was on that court because we wanted to see, are they going, what are they going to do? Are they going to just give them a slap on the wrist? Or are they going to make them pay for their crimes? I mean, this horrible thing had been done. Someone needed to pay. Think about, uh, at the end of, uh, apartheid in South Africa. They handled that very differently. They had what they called the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Essentially, if you were a, a, a policeman or a landowner or, or a politician and you'd you had done terrible things to black people. All you had to do was come before the court and just say, "Here's what I did." If you were honest about it, if you told the story accurately, you'd be forgiven. But the point was, the story needs to be told. This, what happened to this person, needs to needs to be related. And part of that was, uh, you know, the the South African church had a part in that. That's why it was handled that way. I, I hate to bring this up, but there are things going on in our own denomination right now that where there's injustice that needs to be addressed. Right now, there are meetings uh, in Nashville of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention talking about what are we going to do about some of these accusations down through the years of people who've been uh, sexually abused in churches and uh, that was covered up by this body or this church or this. And, and the whole thing is, did the executive board know about these things? And if they did, what did they do about it? Did they hide it? Did they lie about it? Did they help out their friends or did they let the truth come out last summer at the convention the people who were there voted and said we want an investigation and we want the executive committee to tell everything well yesterday the executive committee said yeah we'll have an investigation but we're not going to relinquish our our uh, our uh, attorney client privilege we're not going to we're, we're going to continue to keep an attorney between us and the commission that's disturbing there's a lot of people upset saying, no, 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 you, we said you've got to tell everything. We don't, we don't want you to hold anything back. So I'm praying that all the truth comes out and whoever's responsible pays for it. That should be our attitude in these things. That's the attitude of God. When people are, when people are victimized, murder, rape, uh, robbery, oppression, slavery, justice has to be done. It's not vengeance. It's justice. There's a difference. And when there's justice, there's comfort. When there's justice, then people can say, okay, I've been heard. I've been seen. I matter. I'm not just a a statistic. I'm not just someone who's been uh, cast aside. But then we get to the New Testament, and we find out how beautiful on the mountain are the people, is the one who brings good news. What is the good news of the New Testament? That Jesus Christ has borne our sorrows and carried our suffering. He's the one who carries all of that. And therefore, we know, therefore, we know that whatever's been done to us, it's been done to Him as well. And He's going to bring about justice for us. How does He do that? He, do, he does that, first of all, by dying for our sins. He dies for the sins of the victim and the victimizer. And so, there's repentance, there's a chance for redemption for everyone who will receive it. And we know that no matter what evil a person has done, they're either going to pay for it themselves by being eternally separated from God, or they're going to receive the redemption of God and recognize that Jesus paid it all, and they'll be redeemed, and God will be glorified in it. And and so, yes, we want justice to be done in an earthly sense. We cry out for that. But we know that sometimes it's not, because we live in a world full of sinners. But we take comfort in the fact that Christ's blood is going to cover it. And God's wrath and God's love come together at the cross to tell us that one way or another, no one gets away with anything. And that's that. When you take the book of Nahum and you throw it into the the, uh, context of the gospel, that's the message we get. You know, Some of you have your own Nineveh, whoever that is, or whatever that might be. You can trust God with it because he's going to bring you justice one way or another. Am I talking about stuff I don't know anything about? Yeah. I freely admit that. I don't know what it's like to be treated that way. I don't know what it feels like. I don't claim it to. But Jesus does. And Jesus, nobody's ever been more innocently maltreated. And he's the one who brings you ultimate justice. So, not the happiest book of the Bible, is it? But, in a sense, it's good to know that God is the mighty warrior who's on your side. Don't don't look for this to be my Christmas sermon um, in a couple of months. Probably not the way the Lord's going to lead me, but I praise God it's in the Bible. Let uh, Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenging parts and Lord, the comforting parts. Thank you for showing us the comfort that is found in those challenging parts. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to take our comfort in you. I pray particularly for people who are uh, upset, people who, are, who feel mistreated, people for whom life hasn't been fair, and some of them perhaps in this room. I pray that they would, they would take their pains and their sorrows to you and know that you will bring them ultimate justice and ultimate comfort. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who look out for those who are on the bottom, just like you do. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.